But before I go any further, what I want to do is I want to start us in prayer. And this is not my prayer, but it is my prayer. Um, this comes from a book, and I, I recommend this to a lot of people. It's called The Valley of Vision. It's a book of Puritan prayers. And a lot of times when you, you, know, you find yourself struggling with words to pray. Y'all ever been there? Um, this one really helps me, and it's fine. It's funny because I'll sometimes just open up the book, and it's exactly what I was thinking, but I couldn't express it in words. But I'm going to pray this prayer uh, to start us off. It's called "Longings After God." So let's pray. Our dear Lord, we can but tell you that you know that we long for nothing but you, nothing but holiness, nothing but union with your will. You have given us these desires, and you alone can give us the thing desired. Our soul longs for communion with you, for dying to self and our indwelling corruption, especially spiritual pride. How precious it is to have a tender sense and clear apprehension of the mystery of godliness, of true holiness. What a blessedness to be like you, as much as it is possible. For a creature to be like its creator. Lord, give us more of your likeness. Enlarge our soul to contain fullness of holiness. Engage us to live more for you. Help us to be less pleased with our spiritual experiences. And when we feel at ease after sweet communion, teach us it's far too little that we know and do. Blessed Lord, let us climb up near to you and love and long, and plead, and wrestle with you, and pant for deliverance from the body of sin. For our heart is wandering and lifeless, and our soul mourns to think it should ever lose sight of you, our beloved. Wrap our life in divine love, and keep us ever desiring you, always humble and resigned to your will, more fixed on you, that we may be more fitted for doing and for suffering. God, may the words of uh, that I am about to speak be from you and your spirit. May they edify your people and motivate them to live as disciples of you. It's through Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. So I'm glad to be with you. I've got three things to get us kicked off, and hopefully you'll um, this will kind of set the stage. First, I want to thank you guys for uh, the opportunity for me to share some thoughts with you, and that you took the time, especially right before lunch, to come and hear this and join me in this journey, okay? Because this is a journey, amen? amen? Being a disciple of Christ is a journey. The second thing is I want to encourage you not to feverishly be taking notes during this time together, okay? I have 10 pages of notes. Set your notes aside and write this down instead. Um, I want to give you my email address, all right? It's ph. I L most pronounced that Phil at fxcc.org. Okay, and you can email me now or right after class. Yes, sir. Would you repeat that? Yes, I will. P H I L at fxcc.org org, and I will email you these notes. All right, because here's my promise: I will probably not get to all the notes. But I hope that the notes will be edifying and, and, and build and motivate you beyond the class. Because this is something, if all we did is come and listen to a class and go, oh, that's a great class, but not be changed, then it was kind of a waste of our time. 
Okay, we want to be changed. All right. Uh, and then the third thing, uh, there's no one way, no one way to do spiritual formation and discipleship. And I'm not going to stand up here and tell you I've got the way and the method to do this. What I want to tell you is be faithful. Be faithful in the moments that God gives you to disciple others. Because, by the way, if you pray for it and you desire it, He will give you opportunity. So be faithful in that moment. We all learn as we go and are carried along by the Holy Spirit. Amen? Yeah. <laughs> happens. All right. Um, I'll, I'll get in trouble if I don't mention this. Dwayne is sitting back there from Leafwood Publishers. Um, this is uh, D Squared that came out in March. Uh, something that God shared with me to share with you. And it's on becoming a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm not going to repeat that book to you. That would be a waste of your time. You can read it if you want to. I'm going to share some things with you um, that God's been sharing with me recently coming from a story. So let me ask you this. How many of you guys loved climbing trees when you were growing up? My hand's up. I loved it, didn't you? That feel of being able to get further up, higher above things to be able to see out and see those things around you. All right? Let me tell you this. Now, when, when did you stop climbing trees? Is it, Y'all still climbing trees? I am. <laughs> I'm one of those guys, right? But why do we and when do we stop climbing trees? Think about that for just a moment. You don't have to answer that question. But I'm going to tell you right now, this class is for tree climbers. It's for those who are not satisfied with a surface level, crowd-based, noisy Christianity. It's for disciples. It's for those disciples who are not content with sitting in pews and simply just getting their ticket punched to heaven. But for those who want to know Jesus and allow Him to enter their lives and transform them into His likeness so that we can engage and change the world. It's for people who are willing to enter into a risky experience with Jesus Christ because that's what He calls us to. For the purpose for the purpose, to allow him to confront us where we are most unchristlike, so that he can change and transform our lives. This class, I'm telling you, is about true discipleship. So my question to you guys is, are you ready to climb? Because I'm going to step on toes. Y'all ready? Luke, all right? Luke chapter 19, we find a story of a tree climber. Y'all remember his name? Zacchaeus. Let's read that story for just a moment, okay? Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Y'all remember that? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, okay? So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, What? Zacchaeus, hurry up. Come down. Why? What's he going to do? I'm going to your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, all the crowd around him. He has gone to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. 
And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And if I, um, and Jesus said to him, listen to this statement, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to what? Seek and save the lost. What's our job? To seek and save the lost. And so I believe right here in this short story, and by the way, we learn more about Zacchaeus than we learn more uh, about most of the disciples in the New Testament, in this one uh, ten-verse section, okay? But I believe here we can find um, at least four steps of spiritual formation and discipleship that I hope will be helpful to you um, in your walk and in helping others become disciples. The first is this. It's climbing trees. All right. Zacchaeus was seeking. Did you read that? He was seeking. He was not just wanting to see Jesus, you know, get a visual of him. Um, and so we're told that he was seeking to see who Jesus was. That's, that's a deeper uh, seeking. He had a desire to know more about the Lord rather than simply allow others to tell him who he is. He wanted to find out for himself. So he had a deep longing to search for Jesus himself, the person of Jesus Christ. So in order, here's the first step. In order to grow spiritually, we have to start with a desire to seek who Jesus is. Not simply just sit in the church and hear about Jesus, but to seek who he is. So in order to do that, we have to ask ourselves this question. And it's not my question. It's the question that Jesus asked. In John chapter 1, John the uh, Baptist is uh, talking about the Lamb of God, right? And he's uh, talking to these different disciples who are listening to John. And all of a sudden he goes, behold, what? The Lamb of God. And he's walking along. And, these, and two disciples start following after. And Jesus, in verse 38 of chapter 1, turns around and asks a question. He says this to them. What are you seeking? And I believe Jesus asks us that question every day of our walk. If we're following hard after him, I believe he's turning around and looking at us in our eyes and in our souls and saying, what are you seeking? What is it that you're looking for? And I'm going to tell you briefly, there's a lot more in the notes, and you can read it later. Briefly, I'm going to tell you the three things we can find in Jesus that I find uh, most people uh, see. And, this, and there's some more of this in the book too. But First is this. Some are seeking a rabbi, a teacher. Okay? This is uh, when they turned around and uh, he asked this question, what are you seeking? They, they proclaimed to him, rabbi. So they automatically see him as a teacher, <coughs> as a prophet. Now, I believe everyone starts here when, they, when they're looking for Jesus. They start at this place. Um, in fact, there was one of the disciples that always maintained Jesus as a disciple from what we find in Scripture. He never went beyond it. Do you all know who that was? Bible trivia? Who betrayed him? Judas. Judas. He, Jesus to him was a rabbi. Okay. Um, when we look at the passage in Matthew 26 and he's saying that someone's going to betray him, all the other 11 say, is it I what? Lord. Lord. But only Judas says, is it I, Rabbi? Mm -hmm. Okay? Now I want you to consider that because 
I believe that most in the world today start there and stay there with Jesus. Even Muslims believe that Jesus was a good teacher. But I don't think that we're supposed to stop there. Amen? I think there's more to it than that. Okay? So the, the next title that we see come up, and it's still there in chapter 1, we see it in verse 41 of John, that um, Andrew goes tells, goes tells his brother about this guy, and he proclaims him as Messiah or Lord. Okay? Now with this title, I believe a lot of us get to and do get stuck with. And I think a lot of our uh, membership in our churches today are filled with people at this place. Why? Okay, at this level, to pr proclaim him as Messiah, King, Lord, one's willing to allow Jesus to be their Messiah, their Lord, and it means they're willing to allow him to be the ruler or master of their lives because they believe that he will get them to where they want to go. Okay? It's Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay. So I'm going to make him my Lord. All right? It's kind of like not unlike our bosses at work, right? We'll be willing to follow a boss at work as long as he's, he gets us to what we want. Right? So I think many people fall into this category. We want someone to save us, and we're good with that. We'll even change a certain aspect of our lives in order to allow him to be that in our life, okay? You will mostly do what Jesus asks of you unless it is counter to where you want to go or what you want to do. Then you will fudge on it with the full assurance that Jesus saves and, I, and he's still Lord. That makes sense? Mm -hmm. But I still don't think that's where we stop. There's another category and another statement we have to claim. Who do we need to claim Jesus to be? God, right? Because he is the, that is the Savior, right? Um, who had a hard time accepting that Jesus was uh, rose from the dead? Thomas. Yeah. Y'all remember that? And when he doesn't finally encounter Jesus post-resurrection, which is actually a, a while post-resurrection before he actually sees him, he claims this statement. He says, he basically is on his knees. And he says, my Lord and what? My God. my God. There's a proclamation he makes there that he wouldn't have made prior to that. But he sees the resurrected Lord before him and recognizes him as God. One of the big uh, statements I, I use with this comes from John chapter 6. Now John chapter 6, Jesus is Whew, he's sharing some tough teachings to the people, right? So much so that after he finishes it, what happens? They leave. They leave. And not, not the crowd, by the way. In John chapter 6, it's not the crowd that walks away. It's many of his disciples no longer followed him and walked away. Isn't that crazy, guys? Think about that. They walked away and no longer followed. And here's uh, who's, who's left. After those disciples walk off, who's left? Twelve. The twelve. And Jesus turns around to him and he goes, What about you? What does Peter say? To whom would we go? Yeah. To whom would we go? You, Lord, you are the one that has the word of what? 
eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know you are the Holy One of God. At some point, some point, we have to move from rabbi to Lord to God. That He is God. Because when we say that, we're saying, you're God and I'm not. You're the I am, the created me. It's not a recognition of a role or a title. It's a recognition of who he is and who we are not. Our confession does not reflect our actions. Did you hear my statement there? Our confession does not reflect our actions. Think of Peter. He confessed Jesus as Lord. And then what did he do? Denied him. He denied him. Our actions reflect our confession. So, what are you seeking? And based on what you're seeking uh, and your answer to that question, you'll determine what you, uh, how you want to know God. Okay, is there a difference between knowledge and knowing? Yes. What's the difference? Relationship. Relationship. Ooh, thank you. So, I can gain a bunch of knowledge about something. Right? Y'all have knowledge about useless knowledge in your head? Yep. <laughs> I got a bunch of useless knowledge. Just get me quoting things about Star Wars, movies, things like that, man. I got a bunch of useless info. But because I know have knowledge about something does not mean I know it. I could gain a lot of knowledge about my wife before we were married, right? And say, give just write all that you are on a piece of paper, and that'll be enough for me. How do you think Angie, my wife, would have taken that? Not well. Not well. <laughs> she would have been like, see ya, right? right? I had to get to know her, which required effort, action on my part. I wanted to know more about her. Man, this, I'll, let me give you this passage. This is crazy. Listen to this. It's, it's an indictment. On the Israelites. Isaiah 1 verse 3 says this. God says, The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. <laughs> you know what God's saying to them? Even animals know their master, but you don't. Could that be said of people in our church buildings today? Sadly, yeah, right? We can, we know a lot about God. We can even spout out Scripture, where it's at, how it's supposed to be used. That doesn't mean we know Him. Uh, Jesus said, many on that day will come to me, and they'll say to me, Lord, did we not? Right? And fill in the blank. All this church work I did. And what does Jesus say? I never knew you because you never took the time to get to know me. Yeah. And at some point in our walk, we've got to move from Lord to God and to know God. We have to, we have to become intimate with Him. Knowing in Scripture, by the way, what is it a lot of times uh, uh, talking about? And Adam knew Eve. Just new information about it, right? It's intimacy. Intimacy. 
when I tell that to a, a group of teenagers, they're like, ew. But now in this point of my walk of faith, I'm like, yeah. That's how we're supposed to know God. So Paul points this out. He says, knowing comes from God through Christ. In 1 Corinthians 8, he says, but if anyone loves God, he's known by God. Do y'all want to be known by God? Yes. I want him to know me. Um, in Galatians, he says this, formerly, when you did not know God, when you didn't know him, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, listen to this statement, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you wanted to be, uh, whose slaves you're wanting to be once more? How can we do that, guys? Once you've tasted the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ, how could we turn back to the world? Amen? Knowledge of God is more than just knowing facts or information about Him. It takes us into the recesses of who He is. And we want to know Him better in that place. Um, Y'all remember this? Paul's talking about the, he, in Philippians. He's telling them, I can boast, right? I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? All these sorts of things. He says, but I count all that a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of what? Knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. All that is manure. If you want to get to the Greek text, we could go a little bit more crass, but I'm not going to. It's all nothing compared to knowing him and being known by him. John tells us in 1 John, Beloved, let us love one another, for God, uh, love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God, and what? Knows him. Knows him. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Knowledge is temporary. Right? Have you all forgotten a few things in your life? <laughs> Just a couple? <laughs> Did you forget what time you woke up this morning or what you had for breakfast? But love is what? Eternal. It goes and it goes. Those who seek Jesus as rabbi or messiah know about God and at times are willing to follow him based on that knowledge. However, those who seek God as God know him. They're intimate with him. They seek an intimacy with him that will not be limited by the confines of simple human knowledge, but they will transcend that in spiritual uh, transformation that takes place from the inside out. Okay? So, knowing God. So our first step is what? Desire. Desire. Do you desire to see who Jesus is? And what are you really seeking? The second step. Um, this deep longing to seek the Savior was not enough for Zacchaeus, was it? Right? He could have just simply wanted to see who Jesus was and kind of found a spot where he got a good view. Right? But that wasn't enough. He acted upon his desire by doing what? He climbed a tree. Okay? So the second step is in intentional spiritual growth. In becoming true disciples of Christ is we've got to take action on our desire. I, I, I think it's a sad thing today to find that we have a lot of people that claim desire but don't follow it with action. Do y'all see that? Yeah. 
We cannot grow in Christ-likeness vicariously through others. Oh, yeah, we do missions. Oh, where, where did you go? Well, we had a group go, oh, you didn't go? Well, no, no, but we went. Y'all have heard those statements, right? So we can't live that, that uh, transformation vicariously through others, nor can we do it by sitting passively in our seats, by taking things in and simply thinking that's enough. Have y'all struggled with that in your walk at times? I know I have, because it's easier. So, true discipleship, true uh, formation of Christ in us requires, and I would even say it demands, that we take action. That we do something. So Zacchaeus, big man, small man? Small man. As a matter of fact, that's the, the, the sad thing about the song. That's what we focus on in the song. That's not the story of Zacchaeus. Right? He was small in stature, but big in reputation. Okay? His reputation preceded him. The crowd would have seen Zacchaeus and just pushed him out of the way, dismissing him. Right? He's a sinner. Why would the, why would the possible Messiah even take note of this sinner? So they would have pushed him out of the way. So since he couldn't see over the crowd or hear over the noise... He took action. He chose to act on his desire, rather remain satisfied in the midst of the crowd and the noise. And I think, sadly today, we've got a lot of people that are satisfied with staying in the midst of the crowd with everybody else and being okay with the noise. Zacchaeus could have made excuses, couldn't he? Right? He could have, because none of us in here have ever made an excuse, right? He could have started saying things like, I'm just not tall enough to see over the others, so I just, um, whatever. He could have said, there are too many people. He could have said, I'm just not tall enough. He could have said, the crowd will push me out of the way anyway. He could have said, I, I can't hear them over the him over the noise of the crowd. He could have even said, I ain't going to climb up in that tree. Make me look ridiculous. Grown man, climbing a tree. But Zacchaeus didn't make excuses nor did he justify his inaction. He acted. If we're serious about knowing Christ and being known by him, we'll not only uh, stop making excuses or try to find ways to justify our inaction, but we're going to do something. Our desire will find its fruition in what we do. We'll no longer be satisfied with spiritual laziness. Y'all ever found yourself spiritually lazy? Can we be honest? Yeah, I know I have. means that we have to be honest with ourselves and our desire. Do we truly desire Him or what He can give us? I think one of the struggles that we have in the church today is too many people are, are putting going to heaven as the goal. I'm going to tell you this. Heaven is not my goal. What? God is. Because wherever God is, that's heaven for me. Okay? So I want to be there with Him. I don't want to make my end heaven. I want to make my end God. And if, that, if God is my end, then all I want and all I desire is to be with Him, to know Him, to be transformed by Him. And it changes my life forever. So do we seek Him as a God of our lives or simply as our Lord or Rabbi? The answer to those questions is more spoken through our actions than our words, right? As I said earlier, our, com our confession of Jesus as our God 
is not as much spoken as, as it is lived. So God calls us to holy and holy living. H-O-L-Y? W-H-O-L-L-Y. He wants us to love Him and live for Him holy, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when we do that, He prepares us for H-O-L-Y, uh, separate and apart from living, that we look different from the world. Okay? How do we do this? Well, you, you guys, I'm sure, have got your lives all figured out and worked out. But for me, my life is fragmented. I find myself going multiple places at once. I have three daughters that keep me busy all the time. And they go three different directions. And so I might see my wife at night. <laughs> and if so, it's to say good night. We get so hurried and busy that a lot of times we don't even know where we're going. But choosing to climb means to take the chance to go higher than that noise. <laughs> higher than the crowds that we find ourselves so um, trapped by, right? To choose to act on our desire. To release our pride and become undignified before God. Are y'all willing to do that? No one's speaking. Are you ready to be, I'll become, are you ready to make David's statement? I'll become what? More undignified than this. Are, is it the proper look, what you're looking for? Choosing to climb requires surrender and humility at the foot of the cross. Where all that pride and all of who we are is placed before him so he can transform in us all he wants us to be. Um, James says this, James chapter 4. You adulterous people. That's a pick-me-up. Thank you, James. <laughs> you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself what with God? An enemy. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. But He gives more grace. Praise God. Amen. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. And He will do what? He'll flee from you. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. What? Yeah. Don't be joyful about your sinfulness. Mourn over it. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will do what? He's going to exalt you. He'll lift you up. So God is a jealous God, isn't He? He created the spirit that is within you and He's jealous over it. Because what do we do with that spirit? Well, we quench the spirit, but we also let that spirit go look elsewhere. It's only supposed to be fulfilled and enjoy the, uh, the love of God, but we go try to get it fulfilled elsewhere. And so God's jealous over it. I made that spirit to be connected to my spirit. Why are you going elsewhere with it? So spiritual transformation will only happen when we're willing to submit ourselves to God, resist the devil, and flee from him. Don't flirt with him. Draw near to him so that He'll draw near to us, cleanse and purify ourselves, and humble ourselves. Humility and surrender are paramount 
in truly becoming a disciple. Do you all agree? How easy is that? I, I just sat in a class with Rick Ashley, and he was saying how someone came up to him that was someone trying to make a decision to become a believer. And he said, this, she just screamed out. She says, do you know how hard it is to absolutely surrender all of yourself to Jesus? sad thing is, is I don't know that a lot of us do in the church. We've grown up with it a lot of times. To one that has never done it, it's hard. But to us, we're like, well, yeah, you know, not completely surrender. It's just parts. Peter says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, is doing what? Seeking to devour you. So our job is to be seeking Christ. But what's Satan's job? Seeking to devour and destroy us. So whether we want to seek Christ and who he is or not, I promise you, the devil is seeking you. He's doing it every day. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that at the same uh, time all that kinds of suffering are being experienced throughout the brotherhood. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will listen to this. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Doesn't that sound great? But what does it require? Humility. Humble. This whole passage started with Humble yourselves. Then he can do those things. But as long as your pride is in the way, guess what? You have quenched the spirit within you. So in order to give, uh, be able to view him, Zacchaeus chose to be undignified in his approach, and he climbed a tree. He could not see Jesus clearly in the midst of the people, so he climbed in order to get above that noise. He humbled himself and looked ridiculous in order to see Jesus. Are you that passionate about Jesus in your life? Are you willing to look ridiculous for him? In this, Zacchaeus resembles someone else we know in, in uh, Scripture, in his stature, right? Who else was a, a small guy that we're talking about this weekend? Started by being dismissed. David, right? Zacchaeus, like David, was just dismissed. Remember, uh, Randy said, you know, he, he was forgotten until the end. Uh, uh, David uh, Wolpe said his own father dismissed him and didn't mention him to Samuel. Zacchaeus is the same sort of guy. Small in stature, I get, like I said, big in reputation, but dismissed by all. Okay? But how um, he was willing to give himself to Christ they didn't consider, no one considered Zacchaeus an option. But God tells Samuel about David, the Lord doesn't look at the outward appearance or the stature. What does the God look at? The heart. And Jesus did the same with Zacchaeus, didn't he? He had a crowd around him, you guys. But who did he point out? Which one did he point out? The crazy guy in the tree. Everyone, he's, people are crowded around him. He couldn't see them because of the crowd. He gets up in the tree, and the one he points out is the one who was willing to do it. He was looking for a heart. God doesn't look at that stature, the reputation. Instead, he looks straight into our hearts. 
And like David, Zacchaeus was passed over. But Jesus looks up and chooses him. Out of everyone around him, he chooses him, the crazy guy in the tree. He saw his heart. He saw his action. He saw that he was willing to climb a tree, look undignified, just to see him, just to know him. Hear this, you guys. Jesus isn't looking for the good ones. He's not looking for the perfect. He's looking for faithful hearts. Those who know who they are before him, but seek him faithfully. So, I wonder, does God, does Jesus find us in a tree? Or does he have to go looking for us in a crowd? And that's only a question you can answer for yourself, right? When Jesus saw Zacchaeus' faith, he, he invited him into his... He, no, let me uh, say that in a different way. When Jesus saw Zacchaeus' faith, he invited himself into his home. <laughs> You know, we're always big about invite Jesus into your heart and he'll come. When Jesus sees people of faith, what does he do? I'm coming to your house. I'm coming to your heart. You don't have an option. He will invite himself when he sees a willingness within us. Before he invites himself into the home of our hearts, he asks us to do something. This is step three. And this is to obey. Uh-oh, I said the obey word. And one of the words, sadly, in, in marriages, uh, when you perform them today, that a lot of people want to take out is what word? Obey. Obey. Can we just say, I, I choose to love you instead of love and obey? But name me a relationship that you know that doesn't require some level of obedience. True love requires it whether you like that or not, whether I like it or not, <laughs> right? He, choo he wants to come into his house, but he has to obey. When the Lord looked up to him in the tree, he said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I need you to do what I tell you to do. Then I'll get to do what? I'm going to come to your house, right? So we, this third step is a simple one in theory, hard one in practice, right? How often do we hear the Lord's word to obey him and to come out of our trees in order to truly follow him but fail to do so? I, here's the deal. I want us to be tree climbers, but we're not meant to stay in trees. Even if you watch that show that makes tree houses, okay? All right? We're not supposed to stay up in trees. Eventually, we're supposed to come down and walk by his side in the midst of the crowd. Right? The Lord will not appear and force you to seek Him, to pursue Him, or to obey Him. He's not going to force that. Instead, you must cooperate with the grace of God that is given to you, blessed in you, by the Spirit, and force yourself. Did you hear what I just said? We're going to have to force ourselves. Force ourselves and our will toward God. Is that easy? Is it easy to bend your will to His? It's one of the hardest things we have to do, isn't it? Not only bend your will toward His, but make His will yours. What did Jesus say? Not my will, 
but yours. We have to make that same statement as Jesus at some point. Zacchaeus was a rich man, wasn't he? He could have very easily rested on his own ability, his wealth, to get him what he wanted and what he uh, enjoyed in life. And then only approach God when what? Yeah, tough times. You know, it's out of my control. But he didn't do that, did he? There was another rich man, and I think we miss this when we read through the book of Luke. If we go back a one chapter, in the chapter of 18, there was another rich man talked about. Y'all remember this one? So this one is a rich young ruler that comes to Jesus. Y'all know this story? He comes up to Jesus, and he says, Good teacher, good rabbi. Did y'all hear that? What must I do to what? Inherit eternal life. What must I do to go to heaven? And what does Jesus say? Follow the commandments. And he lists out some. What's the rich young ruler say? I did that. Well, sure. I've done that. How long? All my life. I've done those things. Yeah, but you're missing one thing. What is that? Sell it all. Give it away. And then what? Then follow me. What does that rich young ruler do? <laughs> He's sad. He drops his face and he what? Walked away. We have two parallel rich people. Okay? And it, with the rich young ruler, um, he's successful. He's been following the command since he was young, right? And when he walks away, Jesus says, it's real hard for rich people to get to heaven. As a matter of fact, it's harder for what? It's harder for a rich person to get to heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And then what do the disciples say? Oh my goodness! This rich young ruler who obviously is blessed by God because of his righteousness, which is what they believed during that time. The, if you were a, a devout Jew who <clears throat> followed the commands and you were rich, you were righteous. And so they look at him and go, all right, I'm done. I ain't rich, and I struggle every day, and that guy can't make it to heaven? What does Jesus say back to him? With man, it's what? Impossible. Impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And I want you to realize that leads us into this story with Zacchaeus. Right? They're two rich men. Two people that could have trusted on their own merit what they had. They were both seeking. Both of them were seeking. But one was seeking one thing and one was seeking another. One was considered righteous. The other considered what? A sinner. sinner. But what differentiates the two of them? The heart. The heart differentiates them. There are two things. Listen to this. First, what they are seeking and what they're willing to do in order to attain it. One was seeking a ticket punch. The other was seeking transformation through absolute surrender. 
What were they willing to do in order to attain it? One was willing to give conditionally. The other was willing to give completely. The interesting thing is Jesus basically says that it's impossible for a rich person to enter heaven, right? Save two things. That they're willing to allow him to be their God and that they are willing to obey anything he asks of them, even if it costs them everything. The crazy parallel of this passage, show, these two passages show us that we a struggle we have in discipleship today, you guys, don't they? We have a lot of rich people in our churches. Amen? Don't we? And we have those that are willing to give to God conditionally, and we have few that are willing to give to Him completely. Many are willing to say, God, you're God of my life but I'm only going to give you this. So really, we're fooling ourselves about who we've made God in our life. It's not Him, it's me. However, few are willing to make that claim that God is God and follow that with total abandonment. A book I would really encourage you to read, and this is a classic book. It's by Andrew Murray called Absolute Surrender. Read it. Live it. Trust me. You'll be changed by the thoughts he shares in that from many years ago. In Luke 18, Jesus tells the disciples that only God can make it possible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. In Luke 19, he shows that possibility. As God, he says, salvation has what? Come in this place. I didn't come. I came to seek and what? Save the lost. One rich man received it. The other one did not. So, that third step of obedience leads us to the fourth step. Obedience is more than a thought, you guys. It's more than good intentions. Yeah, we, we often judge others by their actions, and we judge ourselves by our intentions. Did you hear what I just said? How do you think God judges us? I'm glad to say through Jesus. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Woo. Once Jesus has come into our home, into our heart, that, that there's a transformation that continues in our lives. It's, we, as we live our lives daily for Him, we become givers. Living through giving. Living through giving. Remember, the rich young ruler walked away sad and unchanged, right? He was given the way to the kingdom of God, and he walked away sad and unchanged. By the way, Jesus didn't run after him. He didn't run after him and go, Oh, no, no, just 10%. Just 10%. <laughs> yeah, I was making a joke about the church. You ran. Okay. But he let him walk away because God wants faithful, willing hearts. However, as Jesus draws near and enters the house of Zacchaeus, we witness that transformation. We shouldn't be surprised it happened so quickly. As they walked, it happened, right? Um, because the presence of God is full of power and wonder, even from the first moment that we encounter Jesus. It's powerful, isn't it? Whew! Are y'all awake? I know, it's tough. <laughs> 
I'm, ex- I'm just used to people saying a lot more amens. I don't need you know. <laughs> First, what does Zacchaeus do? What's part of that transformation? What does he do? He's going to give half of his money to the poor. I am going to give half of what I have. I'm going to give up being rich. I'm going to give it to the poor. What's the second thing he does? What? Four times to anyone he cheated. If I did people wrong, I'm going to give back to them four times, fourfold. Did y'all see the parallel between the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus in this? The rich young ruler says, what must I do? And he says, you lack one thing, do this. Jesus tells the rich young ruler. What's different with Zacchaeus? He volunteers it. Jesus didn't say, you need to do this too. When Jesus enters the home of our heart, we don't have to be told. We know. Because as the Spirit transforms our lives, we see that unchrist likeness in ourselves and we change it for the honor and glory of God. So he gives these things away. He gives up materialism. He gives up his wealth because there's no greater treasure than Jesus himself. And he sees that. So get this. Jesus told the rich young ruler that what he needed to do in order to follow him, Zacchaeus figures it out on his own. Because Jesus entered his home and he grew from that moment. When we truly let Christ in, Christ's character is within us and bubbles out of us. Amen? Amen. Man, when we let him in, he's going to make some changes. (laughs) You know that that's one of the most difficult things in uh, spiritual transformation is where the spirit confronts us where we are most unchristlike. Why is this so hard? Because where we are most unchristlike is who we are. Who we are. So he wants to change that. Are you willing to allow that to happen? And do what needs to be done to allow that to happen? So, here we have it. Four things that we learned from Zacchaeus. Desire. Right? Action. Obedience. And living through giving. So, Does this describe you? Does this describe your life? If not, what's keeping you from it? What's the barriers that you've allowed to be placed in front of you? Y'all ever heard of this one? Climacophobia. Y'all ever heard of that? Anybody want to take a guess what it is? It's a fear of climbing. True. I'm not kidding. It's legit. Go put it, no, look it up on Google. Because if Google says it, it must be true, right? <laughs> so climacophobia. It's the fear of climbing, right? Those who suffer from this fear have often um, had this fear because maybe they've fallen. You know, they're tree climbing and they fought, fail. Or they had difficulty completing a climb. Or they had panic attacks while they were doing it. Does that happen to us spiritually? Think about that. Have you ever fallen in your walk with Christ? Yeah. How often? (laughs) More than I care to remember. More than we want. Yeah. We don't. I mean, we probably can recount in our lives more failure than we can success, can't we? Does that keep us from moving forward? Shouldn't. Shouldn't. But it can, can't it? It can cripple us. 
Well, you know, I'm just, I can't try anymore. That, that fall hurts. Mm. But let me ask you guys this. When do you grow most? When you grow. When do you grow most? When fall. When you fall. Realize we know there's a need for change in our lives when we fall, when we fail. And when everything's going all right in our lives, how do we handle that? I got it. Whew, I got this. I can do it. But when we fall, when we fail, change needs to happen, and we recognize it. So how are we treating our climacophobia? Say that three times fast. How are we treating it? In the world, when uh, someone is diagnosed with this, they, they're treated with uh, cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay? So they're trying to help them learn how to stop that negative thought or feeling that's associated with climbing by replacing it with different um, practices, behaviors. Isn't that like what we're supposed to do in our spiritual walk? If we've got a fear of climbing, a fear of getting up in that tree for whatever reason, We've got to change that fear by replacing it with different behaviors and actions and practices in our lives. That's when the rubber meets the road in our discipleship and we allow Christ to begin to transform our lives. So all these, are these, uh, did y'all, did I teach you anything new about how to get uh, to become a better disciple? Or did you really know this anyway? Think about it. I mean, we've been taught that most of our lives, right? Desire, action, obedience, and living through giving. We've all been taught that through, the, through our lives as Christians. So why don't we do it? Well, for me, sometimes it's a lack of humility. I'm not willing to humble myself to do it. Yeah. That's truly when we get down to it. I tell people this all the time. And hear this. In life, you have the choice between two gods. There's not multiple gods. There's two that you have to choose between. One is, what's the easy Bible class answer? God. And what's the other choice? Me. That's your choices. And that's a hard decision to make. One requires humility. The other one is about pride. Right? Well, Phil, I think you talk a little bit about obedience. I think before a person, before I can become obedient, I first have to humble myself. Like Jesus Without a doubt. in Philippians. Well, Paul Paul in Philippians. Jesus, humility in Philippians. <laughs> While he was still God. He did what? He did not consider his equality with God as something to cling to. He made that decision while he was in heaven. I would love to have that kind of humility, but I'm not there. But why did Jesus make that decision? Why, as being God himself, choose to be hum to humble himself? What does the rest of that passage say? Become a slave. For you. Yeah, he did it for you. He did it for me. His humility was about us. And our humility is supposed to be about him. It's the reversal. Right? Man. The paradox is that should be the easiest thing for us when we realize how fallen we are. Shouldn't humility just be like a no-brainer? Once we go, okay, yeah. I got nothing. I need a savior. He died for me I'm, I, because I'm a sinful person. 
shouldn't that right there spur us to humility? And how do we get the opposite of that? But I think that's the problem. I think the problem in the church today and why people are not deep followers of Christ is because they've come, we've come to believe in some form that we're good enough. Amen. I'm, I'm basically a good person. Do you know what? No, you're not. That's because we're comparing ourselves to each other. Correct. Instead of, Instead of comparing ourselves to who? Yes, to we yeah. got to stop comparing ourselves to one another. All right? The, uh, if I were to tell you, anybody in here ever done, uh, done the long jump when you were growing up? Not me. I, was, I can get like two feet here. All right. But what if I took one of you guys and I said, I'm going to have you long jump against the world record hole. 29 feet. All right? And plus. All right? 29 feet. All right, so I'm, you guys are going to get it uh, side by side, and we're going to do a, going to run. You can run as fast as you want to. I'll even let you start further behind to get that far, much farther of a jump than him. Would you beat him? No. So he's obviously a better long jumper than you, right? Now what if I said, all right, I want you guys to both line yourself up right next to the Grand Canyon. And I want the two of you, with all your might, to run as fast as you can and jump over the Grand Canyon. He's not going to make it either. He ain't going to make it either. Now, he may have made it further than you in the jump, but you both end up in the same spot. Amen? Amen. We got to stop comparing ourselves with each other and more so compare ourselves with him. And when we do that, what do we do? Drop to our knees. You had a question back there? Well, I was just going to say uh, that Zacchaeus, um, you know, as a tax collector, would commonly, they'd say, you're cheating us, you're cheating us. No, I'm not. Just obeying the law. Just doing the law. I'm not cheating anybody. But when he owns it, he says, I'll pay you back four times. Well, that's a reference to Exodus 22. Yep. Which says, if you're a thief and you steal, you pay it four times. So basically what he's saying, and the whole crowd would recognize this, he says, I admit now, I am a thief. I am. And so he, he, he didn't just say, well, okay, I'll, I'll change. I wasn't that bad, but I'll change. I mean, he owned it. And I think it's a problem. The church loves it. We don't want to own it. We don't want to own it. Name it. We don't want to say <sighs> it. what I've done is yeah. stealing, adultery, lying. We just want to say, ah, I was kind of sinful, but I'm okay now. We're okay with generalities. Yeah. Correct? So in our walk, we're okay with saying I'm a sinner. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. We're not willing to own what those sins are. Because if I don't have to own it, but I know I'm saved by it, by Jesus, then I can still practice it because I'm saved. But if I own it, what do I have to do? I have to change in it. For me, I think one of the most important verses in the Bible, and there's so many oh, yeah. verses, is Jesus is, is just beginning his ministry, and he is giving his one of his very first sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, and the very beginning of that sermon, he starts out with the Beatitudes. And what does blessed mean? It says, if you want to be happy, I'm going to give you a little list of what's going to really make you happy. It's not a list they were expecting. Nope. And the number one thing to make you happy that our Lord told us is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And I believe that that is saying 
when you become aware of your utter and total dependency and desperation for God, <laughs> that is when I can begin to work with you. Yes. And that's where reconciliation and, and, and begins. Step beyond what you're saying. I mean, we're on the same page with everything you said. But I, I think about, you know, he says, um, I am giving you the desire and the power to do it. Pleases me. Yes. And he says, um, that was in what, Philippians, and then he says, he will um, equip us, or what's the word? Um, he will enable us to do, to do everything. So we don't even have to have the desire. We don't even have to have the power. But we have to trust him to give it to us. So it's not about, you know, I can't do this, I can't do that, I'm, I'm weak. You just simply trust him, go to him, realize your utter dependency on him. And then he can work with you and take you where he wants to take you when you have that surrendered spirit. But we just got to go always back to Jesus, always back to him and his power. What's our theme this week? Guys, I'm telling you, we have got to be broken before God in order for him to <laughs> shape us, right? Paul tells us in Second Corinthians, we are all but what? Jars of something. Clay. Weak, fragile vessels. But what do we hold within us? The light of the gospel. And I don't know if you know about this, but that imagery of a jar of clay, they would know if it, a jar of clay was good or not, um, or if it had cracks in it, by placing a light within it. And they'd place a candle in that jar, and then they would hold that uh, jar up with the candle in it, and where the light shone through, they knew that it was weaknesses. Paul turns, he flips that and says, yep, but that's how the gospel will shine through you. It'll shine through your cracks. People will see me through your weakness. Be that light. It's time for us to be disciples. Amen? Amen. Zacchaeus followed through desire. I want to send with this prayer. This is a prayer. Not my prayer again. This is Psalm 143, verse 8 and 10. I pray it every morning. I don't even get out of bed until I've prayed this. So I'm going to pray it for us. Ready? Father, let us hear in the morning of your steadfast love. For in you we trust. Make us know the way we should go, for to you we lift up our souls. Teach us to do your will, for you are our God. Let your good spirit lead us all on level ground. To your glory, honor, and power forever and ever, we pray this prayer in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Email me. I'll send you all this. I didn't get through everything, so send you all the rest. <laughs>